coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. I should say there's two things. One is awareness. Don't be the best kept secret out there. Get yourself on podcasts. Get yourself published in magazines and in, in, in on blog posts and not, not your own blog posts, but somebody else's. Like I've been in Forbes. I've been in I've written for the industry magazine, Inside Self Storage. Both my partner and I have been presenters at the two industry conferences, Inside Self Storage and the Self Storage Association. And then we also have a really good reputation inside of our investor. Word of mouth is the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. And you get that by communication. Having an amazing communication methodology for your investors is a key differentiator. And I don't mind putting that out there because I know most people can't do it. Welcome to the show, I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Up next on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Scott Lewis. Scott is the CEO of Spartan Investment Group. They specialize in ground-up storage unit construction and management Scott has been involved in pretty well all facets of real estate investing. They've done everything from single-family flips. What we're actually talking about mostly today is what they're basically involved in today is uh, storage units. And they currently manage about 4,000, manage and operate about 4,000 storage units across the country today. They're experts at ground-up development for these storage facilities, storage units. So we get into a lot of the how-tos that they use to be able to determine where a storage unit should be placed. What was actually really interesting, Scott has a, a background in the military and some of the training and some of the learnings and processes of procedures that he learned through his years with the military, he started to apply to the the storage space, the storage unit space. So really, really interesting how he made that transition and used a lot of those those trainings and those learnings to grow his company, grow his business today. So this has been a great episode with the Pass the Secret Sauce. Learned a hell of a lot about storage units today. And uh, if it's something that you're interested in, absolutely suggest that you reach out to Scott Lewis and learn a little bit more from him. Absolutely listen to the episode today. And I hope you enjoy. You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up in a family that was business-minded. My parents divorced when I was about nine. I'm not some sad, like, wrong side of the track story, but I'm also not a stable home story either. Mm-hmm. I grew up middle class. We didn't eat dinner as a family ever that I can remember, even, even when my parents were married. It was just kind of, hey, here's dinner, grab it, eat it, and go. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually, you know, I, I, <clears throat> my wife and I, we do sit down for dinner. We try to do it maybe once or twice per week, but otherwise... Mm-hmm where more of just grab food and go. And that's kind of my, it suited me well in the army to not sit down and meander through a meal for 45 minutes when I, when they gave me three and a half minutes to eat an MRE. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of, you know, my upbringing kind of prepared me for that, but I think that's kind of the, the gist of it. 
Very cool. Very cool. So, so were you exposed to any type of entrepreneurialism or, or anything like that growing up at all? Not at all. And in fact, like I might argue that I'm not an entrepreneur and I know I've co-founded a business and that by definition is entrepreneurship, but I never had a lemonade stand. I didn't mow grass, like mow yards for money. I didn't convince my buddies to like shovel snow while I went out and, and, and made the money. I think and I started Spartan because I had basically hated everywhere else I'd worked. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to build a company or build a place, I'll say, uh, and a company just happened to be the natural progression of that to where myself and, you know, my wife actually worked for the business. A good friend of mine is my co-founder. His wife works for the business. And, you know, we're, we're growing now where we're past hiring family and friends, but we just really wanted to make a really awesome place to work. So we basically took everything that we hated about every other company that we had ever worked for and did the opposite. So we're really flexible here. COVID has done absolutely nothing to our operating because we already had that flexibility in because it just made sense to us. We're not, you know, when you look, if you're a theory of McGregor leadership in the 60s, theory X, theory Y, theory X, butts and seats, people were unmotivated. Theory Y, it doesn't matter. People were motivated. They want to do a good job. Yeah. I've always been a theory Y leader. So no, that's that kind of that's more the entrepreneur story than, than going out there and wanting to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And that's a great starting point to, to be able to you know, build on that foundation. I, I completely, completely agree as well. So, so after school, you, you joined the army, correct? And you had a number of years of service, correct? So I had kind of a convoluted route. So after my undergrad, I graduated with chemistry and marketing. So okay. I went into biotech sales, did that for a couple of years and I'm really an integrity guy. So some shady stuff happened at the top levels of the company. And that caused me to really question whether I wanted to work for that company or not. Mm -hmm. And one thing that my dad said to me when I was graduating, cause I graduated in 2003, just after 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, so I was pretty gung ho. My dad had served in Vietnam. So I was pretty gung ho on serving my country. But he said then like, hey, the army's been around for a while. It's not going away. Why don't you go do this job for a little while? If you don't like it, then join the army later. It'll still be there. Okay. So that's kind of what happened. Did the job for about four years and I went into the army at 27. I'm an officer. So I went in as an infantry officer. So my peers were 21, 22. Yeah. You know, when, I, when I finished all the training, they had come from different commissioning sources. I went through officer candidate school. Most of them came through ROTC or West Point. So I was a little bit older, um, which served me well when I was on active duty. I, I did that for about four years. And then I came off and I was with the federal government for a while in a variety of roles at some different agencies around DC and not, I'm not a very good federal employee <laughs> to put it mildly, even though I made it to, you know, very senior levels at a GS 15, the, the top senior level before the senior executive service, I still really sucked as a federal employee. So basically took all that experience and that's what helped start Spartan when I was in my early thirties. Okay. Okay. And, and was Spartan always, focused on the storage space or were you trying some other things you know so out first started out flipping houses um okay. it's, a, it's a really good place to start you can you know if you do it right you can make some good money our first deal my business partner you know people ask me like well how'd you meet your partner like i want to do it the same way you did and i'm like well you got to move next to him so mm -hmm. good luck with that so he was basically my neighbor in between our two houses in a gentrifying neighborhood of dc was literally a crack house it was just super run down we didn't know it at the time, but we were doing a direct mail campaign to the owner because my wife just came home one day and said, you need to do something about that. I'm like, I don't know. What do you want me to do about it? She's like, I don't know. Figure it out. Well, that's what we did. 
And that deal, we made 150% return in a year on that, gave us a good amount of money to kind of seed the business. So we did a couple of more flips, condo conversions, just not our cup of tea. Uh, we wanted to move into bigger deals, cash flowing deals, uh, value add deals for a commercial. And that's when we kind of pivoted and we used the military decision-making process, um, which is a structured framework decision-making structured decision-making framework that kind of, that, that is really helpful if you know how to use it. And I knew, obviously knew how to use it. My wife had worked for some special operations folks um, as a civilian before. So she had learned it. We taught it to the other folks and we use that. And that's what basically oriented us towards self-storage. Got it. It's so, so I'm huge on frameworks and any type of, you know, shortcuts or ways to be able to make the best decision with the information that's available. Is, is there a way to be able to explain how that, that framework works yep. at all? That's one of the, I'll, I'll say if, if, if I've done anything well, it's taking a lot of concepts that the army and the military has mm -hmm. and civilianizing them such that it doesn't read like you're going to invade some other country. <laughs> so MDMP is the same way. You know, the first step is receipt of mission. Well, that's get the task. Same thing, same right, right there. Yep. Like the next thing is mission analysis. So for us, we call that an environmental scan. That's the, that's the civilian term for it. And it's basically just really understanding your operating environment from all different angles. And some folks have heard of a SWOT analysis. That's a, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty useful tool. There's also something called a PESTL analysis, P-E-S-T-L-E. It stands for political, economic, social, technological, legal, and environmental. It's just a way to kind of organize your thoughts in your environmental scan. So then once you have your, you know, a, a really good idea of your operating environment, you go into course of action development in which you try to develop multiple courses of action to achieve whatever the mission is or the task is that you've been given mm -hmm. based on your operating environment. And that there's an important part of that step that we did, and you have to come up with evaluation criteria because eventually you're going to evaluate these things against one another. So for us, when we were using this program or this framework to go through and determine what commercial asset we were going to look at, we came up with three evaluation criteria and we call them the three E's. Mm -hmm. Easy to operate, easy to maintain, and easy to evict. That last one killed multifamily right out of the gate. Um, just not, um, you know, we're looking at coronavirus right now. You know how many eviction moratoriums were put in place for storage? Yeah, I know. Well, Zero yeah, self-storage. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm, yeah. Nobody cares about your, your stuff that's yeah. in a concrete box. Right. Um, so once you develop, you know, two to three courses of action, then you analyze them, um, just by themselves. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to compare what they're going to do. And you can think about it this way. Like think about it, going to a restaurant or buying a house. You can use this thing for whatever you're doing. And if you're looking at a restaurant, you don't want to compare going to a Mexican restaurant with an Italian restaurant before you really analyze what the Mexican restaurant will offer based on, on what it, just the totality of that food, right? Once you analyze them, you're like, all right, cool. Um, you know, I really wanted an appetizer and a dessert. Well, like going to a taco stand, probably not a good idea because I'm not going to get an appetizer and a dessert at a taco stand. Mm -hmm. So once you kind of analyze those courses of action, then you compare them one to the next. Well, you know, there's Mexican food and there's, I, I don't know, Italian, but I'm on the keto diet, Italian food, maybe not yeah. so for that, right? Okay, so that's not gonna work. And then you go and you look at your evaluation criteria and then you make the decision. 
that's it in a nutshell. And if people want to read, it's FM Field Manual 6-0 Chapter 9. It's, it's readily available on the internet. You'll have to push through some army jargon in there, but it, it, it's not exactly a very complicated system if you go through each step-by-step. Yeah, no, that's great. I love it. I love it. I will definitely look that up. So you you obviously use this framework to be able to decide on self-storage as being the focus of, of Spartan. How did you get started in it? I mean, did you have the cash to be able to start investing or start purchasing the properties or what, what was that initial step like? So I'll, I'll, I'll break it up into two phases, pre-syndication and post-syndication. So pre-syndication, I tapped my retirement accounts um, in the federal government. It was called your, your TSP, um, otherwise known as a 401k. My father-in-law was over for dinner one night and I'm like, hey, Steve, I need 50 grand. What do you think about that? And he joined in and that, that was our first deal. Mm-hmm. That first deal, we made several hundred thousand dollars in profit. So the next ones, we, we, we had good balance sheets. You know, I'm not a rag to riches story by any means. Um, I came out of college and I've done well ever since then. I, I, I wasn't like flush with cash when I did my first deal, but I had a good balance sheet. I had no debt. I had you know, enough cash in the bank to convince a bank. And then I got my father-in-law on who, who obviously has done well his whole life. And so he helped us get that first. So it was almost a co-signer, if you will. Mm-hmm. So those first few residential deals, we, we had the, the wherewithal to do them. When we moved into looking at larger deals, we knew we were going to have to get some more cash. And that's when syndication came into it. Mm-hmm. And it was funny when, you know, my, I give my partner a lot of, my partner, Ryan, a lot of credit here. Cause he's like, man, I think we're doing this thing called syndication. I'm like, we're not, that's, that's like some mafia, like grand theft auto stuff. Not, <laughs> that's like a mafia thing. He's like, nah, man, I, th- I, I think we're doing it. It, it. I think we need this thing called a PPM and yeah. Oh man, I think we're doing this. I'm like, nah, we're not doing this. Luckily for that first deal, before we realized that we were doing it, there's a small section of the code because we were just doing very, very close friends and family and they were all accredited that we were actually doing it right. We didn't know we were doing it right, but we were. And then it was like, okay, let's go to, we, we went to the real estate guys, secrets of successful syndication. Um, that's good, good conference. And that's kind of what got us started. So now all of our deals are syndicated through our private um, equity network. Mm-hmm. So, so you had the you you found the money to do these deals. Now, how did you learn? How did you learn which projects would be the best ones to be able to invest in, or were you even looking at building self storage units at this point? Or how did you approach that that identification phase? I guess you can say of you. Know, this is this is a good opportunity. So, great question. We did it from kind of a, a two two pronged approach which isn't, there, there's, there's no secret, you know, unfortunately, there's no secret sauce here. It's out in the industry with feasibility and due diligence. We really, we, we, what we did is before we looked at any deals, we took 90 days and we digested as much of whatever we could find. And at that point in time, there was four of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just basically stood down and did nothing. We didn't look for deals. We didn't do anything. We went to courses we, we listened to podcasts, we read all the books, we did all this stuff. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. 
We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. And each of us took it from a little bit different angle to understand operations, due diligence, capital, and feasibility at the time for the four people that were on at that. Mm -hmm. And at the end of those 90 days, we collated everything that we learned into systems and processes. I'm a crazy army guy. Ryan is the pilot for Delta. Checklists, checklists mm -hmm. and SOPs are the bedrock of everything that we do. So we built checklists and SOPs. When we moved into it, we had a due diligence checklist that when we started, it was probably like 300 items. And now it's almost 700 of things that we go through methodically on every single deal. Feasibility is the same way. And there's different ways for self-storage to do feasibility. And it's out there. You just got to grab all this information and put it together such that you can use it going forward. Mm -hmm. You acquired your first self-storage property. Was there a lot of work to be done or is this, you know, are you looking for essentially the, you know, the, the rundown self-storage unit in, you know, a good area or how, how do you go about saying, you know, this is, this is a good opportunity and, you know, this is our plan to you know, bring it to where we think we can get it to. So all of our deals are value add to opportunistic. We do have storage developments going on right now. We take one to two at a time because there's just a lot of exposure on, on raw land development. Mm -hmm. uh, our one raw land development right now is coming up out of the ground. So they're pouring foundations. Once those foundations get poured, for the most part, all of your developmental risk goes away and it transitions into building risk, which is a little bit more manageable than development risk. Mm -hmm. So once that one comes up, we'll start looking for another raw land development on storage, but most of them are value add. They need operational improvements and there's generally an expansion component to where the market can absorb more and we'll build the expansion. We've got two, two active expansion projects going on. Uh, actually, I should say three. We have three active expansion projects going on right now. Um, one is just getting started. One is going vertical and the other one is still in the planning stage. Okay. So that's kind of the look. We look at secondary and tertiary markets. Um, there's no point in going into the primary markets and getting punched in the face by extra space or, or public. It's just, it's not a game small operators can win. Yeah. So that's kind of where we, that's where we look at them. And we've got an acquisitions team that does everything from direct to seller to broker engagement. They're all over the place. Got it. Got it. Since you're building these units, how do you determine how many units you need to build on, you know, in this specific area. I'm assuming that it's based on the population of the area, but is there a formula or something like that that you, that you employ that you determine how large you need to build? There's not a formula, but there are demand heuristics that are published by various storage publications. And, and it, is, it is based on population for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's different ways to calculate that. You'll hear drive times, you'll hear drive ring or uh, mileage rings. There's a bunch of different ways to do it, to be able to then calculate what the perceived demand is. Mm -hmm. um, and then you, you build, you generally don't want to build past your demand, but then you can build a facility based on, on what that is with a reasonable expectation to be able to lease the thing up when you're done building it. Got it. And, and are you doing this in your, in your 
close proximity geography or are you building these things all over the place? We have 31 states that we're looking wow. in right now based on population, job employment, certain heuristics that we have internally here to our acquisitions team. And we've actually used ArcGIS to build a map. So now brokers, when they start to get to know us, we just give them the link to the map. And it's like, hey, plug the plug the, the address of the property in here. If it lands in a dark blue space, call us. If it doesn't, call us. Don't even bother. We won't yeah. buy it. Oh, interesting. I like I like the filtration process there. That's great. That's great. Yeah, spartanmap.com is what I think it is. Cool, um, and it, cool. it's interesting. It's it's a good tool for the brokers because then they don't waste their time calling yeah, us. Or yours. You just take two seconds and put it in there. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Talk about how you manage these construction projects, you know, again, all over the place. Do you have any tools or obviously I'm sure there's processes and procedures, but how do you go about, you know, making sure that all the permits are there or, you know, the foundations are being done correctly? Do you have a, you know, a construction team that, that you send around to all these different areas or how, how do you manage that process? So the answer to that question is yes, all of the above. We do have a construction team. Right now we're, we're leveraging general contractors and we manage the general contractors mm -hmm. and we manage them through all the various project management systems. Again, there's, there's, no, there's, there's nothing special that we're doing with that regards. We're just doing project management per project, you know, construction project management doctrine. We have project managers inside of Spartan that are managing those projects. One key system that we do use to manage it is Smartsheet. There's a lot of different ones. Uh, Procore is another one. There's a bunch of different smart, uh, bunch of different project management software out there. So, ah, very cool, very cool. So, what are some of the challenges that you've run into when you know you've you've obviously you filtered out the you know this isn't an area that we're interested in. But what other types of challenges have you run into when you're looking to either renovate a, a property or you know build something new? It's always hard to do it remotely. You know, we are we're headquartered in Golden. We're doing it all over the place, so there's a lot of travel. You know, so you know one of the biggest challenges is making sure sub, subs show up on time. Yeah, that's always a challenge. If you run into problems, then that can be you know a, a oh I guess I'm going to you know Texas tomorrow. Uh, so there's some disruption there that's not as ideal as if you're building just down the street from you. Yeah. So it's just really more of a logistics challenge than anything else. Um, there's a lot of construction companies that build all over the, the country. And if you get the right subs and you get top-notch subs, a lot of people try to nickel and dime it. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? Then you're getting on a plane a lot. And then you have a lot of worry. So I, you know, uh, a bit of recommendation to folks that if they're developing outside of a, where they can drive their car. And, and I would say that's maybe one or two hours. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Four hours is an easy, easy car drive, but that means it's an entire day. Right. You're gone. So just be, be a little bit mindful. You start to get to the four to five hour drives. Um, that could be pretty, pretty nasty. You just have to hire good subs and, and, you know, don't step over a dollar to pick up a nickel on there. Most of these projects, you know, even the smaller ones are several hundred thousand dollars, mm -hmm. an extra 10 or 15,000 bucks to make sure that you get a really good sub can save you a lot of headaches. Yeah, that makes sense. How were the, uh, how has the financing been going through COVID? You know, I know on the multifamily side of things, things kind of dried up for a while. Did you see the same thing or is it pretty well, you know, stayed pretty strong and consistent throughout? It definitely like it slowed down, you know, I mean, uh, banks all over the, like all asset classes slowed down yeah. in the first couple of months, but now we're seeing banks are back to it. Our projects are definitely a little bit less standard in the box type thing. Cause we have construction loans, we have regular financing. So there's definitely a nuance there. A lot of our projects we do 
kind of a standard loan and then we raise our own debt for the construction. It's just a lot easier than dealing with banks on a construction loan. It's, it's generally very difficult to do that. So, and we just, uh, we'll trade speed for a little cost. If we have a, a fantastic network of private investors that are very interested in private debt right now. And it's, it's not as good of returns as the equity, but it's also usually secured to the property. So for the short duration construction loans, we're really looking at our private investors right now so that we don't have to mess around with banks and draw requests and all of that stuff. We, we still do the same processes internally mm-hmm. as far as the risk mitigation from the contractor and subcontractors that a normal bank would do. We just do it in a, in a way that A, is, is truly mitigating our risk and it's not just a kind of a cover your ass type approach. But so our investors are safe in those, in those uh, debt investments, but it's a lot faster than having to go through, you know, two or three approval chains um, mm-hmm. inside of a bank for the construction side of the house. The regular financing, we've got some fantastic financing partners that we've really enjoyed working with. So a lot of them are like, hey, build this thing show us you can lease it up and we'll just give you a supplemental loan and change it for you. That's in three of our different projects. They're like, they just don't want to put the construction financing out there, which, yeah. okay. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. No, that makes sense. What, what is the length of time that it takes to put one of the structures together or the, the, the projects together, you know, from groundbreaking to the point when you're ready to start leasing the, the units? About a year. Okay. Um, like storage isn't it. Well, I, let me caveat that. It depends in what jurisdiction you're at. Storage generally isn't a overly complex build. Yeah. Um, a lot of times it's single story. Some of the newer ones, jurisdictions are kind of forcing a, a more, I'll say, appealing design to yeah. bridges for, for basically what it is because they just don't want them. It's really kind of a travesty. It's not not just because I'm a storage investor. It's just a lot of times we show um, you know overwhelming demand in a jurisdiction and a lot of the jurisdictions have their own, I guess, mm-hmm. agenda, and they don't like storage because it doesn't really employ much. I can, I can have a hundred thousand square foot facility with one job, so they don't mm-hmm. really like it, even though their constituents need it in their jurisdictions. But it's generally, you know, it, call it a year from from the time that like a bulldozer starts moving the dirt till the first customer comes in and puts their stuff in one of your units. It's about a year. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you mentioned that you have this this map that you know has the blue areas that are areas where you would invest in. Did you go through any type of a process to be able to determine whether or not you were going to have any jurisdictional issues as far as building storage units in that area? So that that's one of the criteria that you already vetted. And I guess the question is, you know, say I have a piece of land, you know, somewhere, how do I go about determining whether or not the jurisdiction will allow me to build self-storage there, or if I'm going to have issues with that? It's really about the zoning. So you just have to dig into the zoning code to understand like, A, what is your piece of land zoned? And then is it matter of right project, which means it's just an administrative approval. They can't really stop the project if it's matter of right. But if it's conditional use or special use, or there's there's a variety of terms that various jurisdictions use when you do need more than administrative approval and you have to go through public hearings and and be approved by the commissioners and all that other stuff. When you get into, um, if you're a landowner and you're looking to sell, if you bring me a piece of land that's matter of right, that's a different conversation than if you bring me a piece of land that is conditional or special use or you know approved use or whatever it is, because there's a lot more risk because they can, if it's not matter of right, it can easily be denied for whatever reason. And they can also make you do things 
that you don't necessarily want to do that's not advantageous to the project, but the, that it's something that the city wants and as a condition of approval, you'll have to do that. So, but on the flip side, if you're willing to take what's called the horizontal risk of moving through that entitlement process for a non-matter of right project, that's a huge barrier to entry. There's mm -hmm. not that many firms out there that will go through that because it is painful and there's a lot of risk involved to be able to do that. So that's kind of the flip side. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So you mentioned before that you have a great network of investors that you work with. Do you have any tips on you know, reaching out to those types of people or what have, how have you been able to make your connections with those, with those types of folks or companies or institutions or whatever it is? I think the number one thing, or I should say there's two things. One is awareness. Don't be the best kept secret out there. Get yourself on podcasts, get yourself published in magazines and in, in, in on blog posts and not, not your own blog post, but somebody else's. Like I've been in Forbes, I've been in I've written for the industry magazine, Inside Self Storage. Both my partner and I have been presenters at the two industry conferences, Inside Self Storage and the Self Storage Association. And then we also have a really good reputation inside of our investor. Word of mouth is the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. And you get that by communication. Having an amazing communication methodology for your investors is a key differentiator. And I don't mind putting that out there because I know most people can't do it. Yeah. Unless you have a, a dedicated kind of focus on communication as, as a syndicator, like, especially if you're the operator, um, like we are, you get distracted um, yeah. and then you're doing the deal and you forget to communicate your, to your investors and that irritates them. And then nobody talks about, nobody talks positively about something that irritates them. But, you know, we've had, we've had some of our investors call us the gold standard of, of syndicators. And that's because mm -hmm. of the communication. They're always aware and bad news doesn't get better with age. One of our uh, values is transparency. If we're taking a hit, the investors are going to know about it. They're going to figure it out anyways. When yeah. the returns don't get hit, like there's a reason for that. And it's much, it's a much, much easier conversation to have if something is going wrong and it will always go wrong. Yeah, something right. will always go wrong. It is never going to be gumdrops and lollipops. So there's always going to be problems and, and being upfront and, and very transparent and communicating through problems is the way to really like make your investors comfortable for you, with you. I'll give you an example. We have an RV park in West Texas, in Pecos, Pecos Texas. It's in the Permian Basin about, if, if folks are familiar with Midland, it's an hour and a half west of Midland. If they're not familiar with Midland, call it Dallas, six hours west, southwest of Dallas. Okay. It's basically in the middle of nowhere. It's right in oil country. Okay. Well, so let's take negative $40 a barrel for oil and sprinkle on a pandemic and then hit it with a tornado. <laughs> that's what happened in March. Wow. Like, no lie. That's what happened. I get a phone call on a Friday night that like, hey, your, your, your RV park's been hit by a tornado and it's been damaged very badly. By Saturday morning, I was on the ground kicking rocks. By Saturday afternoon, I had produced a video for our investors, basically giving them the lay of the land of what happened. One of them already had heard about it on the news. So your investors are going to figure it out. Like yeah. if something bad happens, like don't think you're going to hide. That's not how information travels. So we had already, like by the time our investors found out, they found out from us, not the local news. And that's the way to do it. So I was down there for four days. And once a day, I created an investor video, basically giving them the status of our recovery efforts there. And you know, I've got a 
little bit of a leg up being in a military guy and an like an, an infantry guy. So I'm used to being in in tough situations and I understand how to put together a battle plan. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I got down there, I put together a battle plan. We shared it with the investors and that's what we did. So um, you know, tr training really helped in that regard, but that communication, our investors were like, this is unbelievable the way that, in a positive way, yeah. the way that you're communicating with us. And I love I, it. 100% guaranteed unequivocally, they told a bunch of their friends because we heard about it two weeks later when all of these intakes start coming in. Mm -hmm. Here's one of our assets that was just destroyed by a tornado and a, and a pandemic. The investors aren't going to see a return because that obviously hurt occupancy there, yeah. but yet recommending to all of their friends that they should invest with us. Yeah. I love it. That's, that's, that is absolutely huge. You mentioned before that, you know, as operators, you get, you know, caught up in all the day-to-day -day stuff and all of that. And, and sometimes communication can, you know, get forgotten about. Do you guys have a specific person who's in charge of, you know, basically putting together all the communication or, you know, how does that, how does that work? We have three people. Okay. So yes, that's the answer to your question. And most people are like, well, I can't afford it. I might uh, like to, to get somebody that is helping you um, focus on making sure that that happens. Mm -hmm. uh, probably 50 or 60,000 bucks a year, depending on where you're at. Yeah, right. Um, if you go through and you figure out the, the, the average lifetime value of one of your investors. Yeah. It's it much more than that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's probably an investment. Well, if you have to pay them versus pay yourself, yeah. as long as you're not going to be homeless, you should probably pay them. Yeah, no, if that not, makes... you're going to lose your investors, and, and then you're going to lose your business. And, and what type of a background do you have? You found the best type of communications person to have had? Is it you know some type of a reporter, or is it more creative type writing? People who are authors. What what types of communication have you have you, or I guess talents have you looked for when you're looking for that person? Usually degrees in marketing or communication. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. Scott, this has been fantastic. Well, actually, let me ask, what is next for, for Spartan? What are you guys working on today? Obviously, you're, you're expanding your, your footprint in the, uh, the self-storage facility. Are you, uh, do you have your sights on anything, anything else at this point? No, not, not really. Self-storage is, I mean, we love storage. Mm -hmm. It's boring is all get out, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, like that's why we do it is it's boring. It's, it's uneventful. And that's really what we're looking at. We're, we're trying to transition into larger deals. Mm -hmm. We're looking at large portfolios and, you know, we, the, the, the thing with storage and, and smaller multifamily transactional, it, 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 you do the same amount of due diligence on a $2 million deal as you do yeah. a $4 million deal. So we're really looking to scale up. We now have the team, we have the capital resources, we have the debt markets to be able to go after 20, 30, $40 million portfolios. And that's mm -hmm. really what we're looking to do in, in 2021 is to go after those really large portfolios. I love it. I love it. So if someone wanted to learn more about you or maybe even invest in some of your upcoming projects, what would you say is the best way to, to learn more or, or you know, sign up for that? So just go to our website, which is spartan-investors.com. And there's an investor intake form, and that will go to either Ryan or Ted, our investment folks. Ryan's our chief investment officer. Ted is our investor relations manager. And either one of those guys will sit down and, and all of our investors, we sit down with them and have an initial phone call because we want to understand what your needs are mm -hmm. and really what's important to you so that we can make sure that when, when we're getting into investments or if you have a specific need, we can reach out to you and let you know that, hey, like if you don't want equity because you just don't like the risk, that's no problem. 
we'll like, you'll see, we'll make sure you get the debt investments instead of the equity, which are a little bit safer. Same thing if you're, you know, in your early thirties and you don't want to earn, you know, six, 7%, 8% on a debt investment, but you want to, but you want to learn or earn something higher than that. Um, I, I really shouldn't even have said those, those numbers because we do some of the protected offerings, but our, our investments are in line with what's out there. So if you want to earn a little bit more, then you got to take a little bit more risk and that's on the equity side of the house. I love it. I love it. Uh, Scott, this is fantastic. We may cross paths again. You know, we, we, uh, we may end up jumping into the self-storage space at some point and would love to be able to reach out and connect with you and, and, uh, pick your brain on different things, but this has really been informational. I certainly appreciate the time and, uh, uh, I wish you guys nothing but success in the future. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.